Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Sleep Like a Baby podcast. I'm your host Hannah and I'm an infant sleep consultant as well as a mum living and working in South East London. If how your baby sleeps has taken over your life but you don't like the idea of crying it out, I am here for you. And as this is the first ever episode, it feels only right that I do a little intro and tell you a bit more about myself. But my story is a rather unoriginal one, sorry. Basically, I had a baby, he didn't sleep. And I was completely overwhelmed by how much of the advice out there for baby sleep was conflicting, confusing and increasingly reliant on the idea that parents mustn't make a rod for their own back. And there is a real obsession out there with trying to make little babies as independent as possible from day one. So when I decided to make this my career and train up in holistic infant sleep support, it was really important to me that I helped dispel so many of the common myths that are out there. And I just want to reassure you now that if your baby isn't a great sleeper or you're just going through a bit of a rough patch, it's not your fault and it's definitely not a reflection of your parenting skills. When you have a baby, it's only natural to look for advice and support from people who've done it before. And not all the advice out there is bad either. It's just that when I was a new mum, I found a lot of it jarred with my own instincts. I had a baby who wouldn't sleep anywhere other than on me or next to me. And over time, I started to really internalise that narrative that I was making a rod for my own back. And I came to the conclusion that I just wasn't strong or consistent enough to sleep train. And I thought it was because I was just too weak. You know, when I left hospital with my newborn, I was told to cuddle and feed and respond as much as I could. I was told you can't spoil a baby. But then by about three or four months, once the fourth trimester was over, I felt like the, the... The narrative had changed and the whole world was now telling me that I'd created bad habits that needed correcting or I'd never sleep again. So this is a podcast for people who feel like I did and I'm here to say there are lots of alternatives to sleep training. I'm here to advocate for any family who wants to make a change when something isn't working for them but I'm also here to advocate for families who are doing just fine and want to stop being told they are doing it wrong when really it's going well. Your instinct as a mother or father is, above all else, the most important thing when it comes to raising a child. You are not alone. Your baby is not broken. We can get through this together. So I wanted to start this series with an exploration into the baby sleep industry as it is today. I received lots of messages on Instagram from confused new mums and dads asking if it's true that their babies will get too used to being held or that they have to self-settle in order to sleep. I mean, I was that new mum and I was very confused about this stuff. So everything in this podcast series is basically just what I wish someone had told me. And I want to say you absolutely can have better sleep and a more settled night whilst being responsive. You might not get the same results as sleep training. I'm not here to say that your baby is going to start sleeping 12 hours unbroken from 7pm every night. But I also don't believe you have to suffer if you're going through a sleep crisis. And I'm genuinely here as well not to tell people to not sleep train. I don't judge anyone for their choices either. We're all adults capable of doing our own research and making up our own minds. This is really complex stuff and as far as I'm concerned, there's only what works for you and what doesn't. In fact, I really hate how all of this just divides us into types of parents. You know, if you bottle or breastfeed, if you sleep train or don't, if you do purees or baby led weaning, like it really, really does not matter. You just have to do what what feels good for your family Every baby is different. Every parent is different. I'm not here to preach or convert anyone. My approach is 100% you do you. And I'm aware that sometimes it can sound a little sanctimonious when we talk about this stuff. And I'm still learning how not to sound like I'm on my high horse. But I just want to say that really everyone is welcome here. And we are all doing our absolute best as parents. There is no such thing as perfection. And... Look, I tried sleep training myself, so I don't judge myself or anyone else for their choices. Sometimes you're in a place where you'll try anything and there's no shame in that. 
What does irk me though, and where I think there is shame, is in the large number of people who are telling parents that they have to do something they don't want to. So when I was a new mum, I genuinely believed that there was no other way to improve sleep other than controlled crying. And there are too many people charging a lot of money telling people that message. And they are saying things like, if you don't sleep train, your baby isn't going to develop or you're going to cause lots and lots of problems further down the line, that you're not going to be able to be a good parent, etc., etc. And it's damaging and it's dangerous and it's false. It makes me really angry. So I'm just here to say, you don't have to go down that road if you don't want to. But how did we get to a place where I'm even having to say that sentence? Why do people feel like it's the only option? Why do so many of us as new parents feel like failures if our babies wake at night? Where have these high expectations of baby sleep come from? I saw a friend last week and her father-in-law asked her if her two-week-old baby was sleeping through the night yet. Why are people constantly asking parents this question? So to find out, I decided to speak to an anthropologist who specialises in infant sleep and parenting practices. But before I play this interview, I just want to say that one thing I'm learning so far from doing this podcast is that it's really, really hard to talk about babies and parenting in generalised terms. So we're all having super unique experiences and there is this enormous spectrum out there of what is normal and what is manageable. And of course, when I'm talking to an academic and an anthropologist at that, we're talking about parenting in really generalised terms and we're looking at the trends across generations. But that's problematic in itself, isn't it? Because the conversations about things like sleep, birth, breastfeeding, etc., these are nuanced subjects and I'm aware that everyone who's listening to this podcast will have an extremely unique experience. So you might even feel judged or shamed when we talk about the benefits of certain parenting practices like breastfeeding or a vaginal birth for example and if those things weren't possible for you it can sometimes sting a little to hear people talking about all of this stuff like they're the things we should be doing And I just want to therefore lay my cards on the table and say that I'm someone who had a very medicalized cesarean birth and I also struggled to breastfeed. So I'm not exactly this perfect earth mother myself. And sometimes I hear these things and feel frustrated at the the kind of focus on best case scenarios. And I feel sometimes people don't really acknowledge that for lots of people, a vaginal birth or a smooth breastfeeding journey just isn't possible. And I myself have personally benefited from the advances that we've made in technology and medicine and formula milk. But at the same time, I'm also regretful that some of these things in my own motherhood journey didn't really go how I hoped they would. It's such complex stuff, isn't it? And as I say, these are really nuanced, complex conversations and I'm aware that these subjects can touch a nerve. But I just want to say in interviews like this, please remember that we are generalising in order to explore the trends. We're not here to pass judgment on any individual circumstances or shame anyone. And hopefully through listening to this episode, it will become a little more clear to you why things like birth and breastfeeding and postnatal care aren't actually better funded and supported. So if you've not been able to parent or give birth in a way that you wanted to, it's genuinely not your fault. It means you either didn't have the support you needed or you had no choice and there were other factors involved that were way beyond your control. So yes, breastfeeding, for example, is a biological norm for human infants Vaginal birth is a biological norm. It's what we did in the wild or we died. (laughs) And, you know, we've got to acknowledge that there are benefits to not always doing things that we did in the wild. And there are a thousand legitimate reasons why breastfeeding or so-called natural birth don't happen for women today. And, you know, as one of those women myself, I just want to acknowledge that none of this stuff is meant to shame anyone. There are systems in place that stop us getting help. 
and hopefully through listening to the history of baby sleep and kind of modern parenting we can start to see why this is and then when we understand how we got here we see that the blame isn't on the individual parents but actually on these external forces which inadvertently or advertently undermine our experiences of motherhood and fatherhood okay so that's the intro this is me I'm a totally imperfect parent but someone who is super passionate about supporting families and getting everyone more rest and more sleep and understanding the world around us and why certain things have become the way they have so I hope you enjoy this first episode and thanks again for listening I'm thrilled to announce that my guest on this week's episode is Alice Amber Keegan. Alice is a research associate over at the University of Durham and she's part of the Infancy Sleep Centre they have, which is part of the Department of Anthropology. And Alice is currently finishing off her PhD looking at the influence of sleep location on parental caregiving in the immediate postnatal period and breastfeeding outcomes. I hope I said that okay, Alice. Welcome to uh, the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) Um, So there's so much, so much I want to talk to you about. Um, And essentially, you know, the conversation we're having today is looking at how did we get here to a world in which parents don't feel like they can trust their instincts anymore and are overwhelmed by the constant bits of conflicting information about infant sleep, how they should feed, how they should respond, how they should soothe their babies, etc. So I suppose I wanted to start off by asking you, how did we get here? Yeah, so I think this is something that uh, every new parent feels, that they have all mm. these different advice. So when we think back, we use, uh, in anthropology, we use an evolutionary perspective. So that means that we look at how um, we, as humans, um, exist within other mammals. And um, also we look at our closest ancestors, so primates, monkeys, and how they sleep. And so when we think about where humans fit in with other mammals, we can see that um, mammals are generally defined as either altricial or precocial. So these altricial mammals give birth to very underdeveloped offspring, generally in litters, and their parents leave them for long periods throughout the day uh, in nests and within their litters. And then we have on the other side of the spectrum, these precocial mammals. So these mammals give birth to uh, one or two very well-developed offspring. And these offspring can usually cling or follow to their parents immediately after birth. So something like horses um, or primates. So if we think about chimpanzee babies, as soon as they're born, they can immediately cling to their parents first. And so this means that they can follow their parents um, and they can feed very frequently and on demand. And so their milk is high in sugar and low in fat. And this means that uh, the fat doesn't sustain them for long periods, but um, the high sugar means that they can have rapid growth. So they've got lots and lots of energy. And so when we look at human mammals, we kind of humans as mammals, we exist somewhere in the middle of this spectrum. So we have traits from both altricial and precocial animals. And uh, we're born very, very underdeveloped. Human babies are very helpless. This means that they require close contact with a caregiver for physiological regulation to keep them warm. Um, But they also, like these precocial mammals, have milk that's very high in sugar and low in fat. So this means that the milk doesn't sustain them for very long periods of time. And uh, the high sugar facilitates rapid brain growth. So human babies are born with only 25% of their adult brain volume compared to something like a chimpanzee, which is born with 50% of its adult brain volume. So when we think about sleep, um, because human milk is so high in sugar and low in fat, means that babies are having to wake frequently in order to feed. This is completely normal. Um, Human breast milk is uh, digested in around 80 minutes, 60 to 80 minutes. So um, it's perfectly normal for babies to be waking to feed every two hours. Um, They also don't because they're born very underdeveloped they don't have a circadian rhythm when they're born 
so their understanding of night and day isn't developed. So this means that babies just sleep when they're tired. And um, it also means that their sleep isn't concentrated into the night. It's throughout a 24-hour period. This understanding of night and day develops over the first year of life. So it takes a long time to develop and um, it's something that babies develop at a different rate based on their individual development. So it, uh, their understanding of day and night can develop uh, different stages throughout that first year for different babies. Yeah, and I always advise uh, clients that, you know, that daylight, so exposing them to lots of daylight during the day, keeping naps in a bright, noisy room and then keeping the, the nighttime kind of dark really helps them um understand that difference and their body clock will start to adapt won't it over time exactly yeah we say that um morning having trying to keep um a morning wake time that's a similar time um and not necessarily waking the baby but just exposing them to light so something like opening the curtains at nine o'clock or well, probably earlier yeah. than that um but depending on what your sleep patterns are and what works for you, just trying to have consistent light in the morning can help to uh, kind of kickstart that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, how our brains pick up that light. So even if our eyes are closed, the the brain that the eye sends a message to your brain and to your um, your body clock to say it's daylight and it's time to go. Um which I think mm-hmm. is always fascinating, fascinating, and I think that's a really nice tip as well. That if your baby is fast asleep and happy, you might not want to wake them straight away, but just having that daylight in that room at say seven or eight or nine a.m. every day that you want to do it, just that consistency can kind of anchor that day and help them help their body clock develop with time. Yeah, exactly, and that uh, kind of nighttime bedtime. Uh, can differ so much depending on how much stimulation the baby's had in the day and things like that you know if they haven't had much stimulation then maybe they uh, might be awake for longer I might not want to go to sleep so early so um, just like adults really depending on how much you've done in your day you might be more or less tired in the evening so it it might be easier for people to stick to a a wake time rather than a night time a bedtime yeah I I think that's such a great point and I think it's something that we so easily forget as parents that babies are you know that all people have slightly different sleep needs every day even and if you've had quite a sedentary day as an adult sometimes it's really hard to sleep and and so it's normal for your baby if they've not had a super stimulating day or they've not been outside a lot or they've not moved a lot then it's perfectly understandable why maybe bedtime might go a bit a bit harder but there's a lot of um a lot of expectation out there of what our babies are capable of and there's this idea that if you follow a strict schedule and they will just follow those timings exactly and I think this is where we're kind of confusing uh babies with machines and we're thinking that if we uh, put in exactly the right thing then they will spit out exactly what we want and actually they're individuals and um they're not machines that we can program to do what we want I I couldn't agree with you more and you know that was my biggest realization I had when my on my son's first birthday I I just had finally accepted that when it comes to raising humans the input and the output do not match I think that's why sometimes for some people kind of controlling sleep and and routine and and structure can make you feel like you have got a regained a bit of control but babies don't stick to the plan exactly um you can put in what you want but they'll still have this biological need to wake frequently and be close to a caregiver so um putting them down to sleep for long periods away from a parent or caregiver um is contrary to what they're biologically um encoded to do and that is uh protective for them yes um if we go back if we think back to kind of evolutionary environment where um we might be living kind of out in the wild um it's protective for babies to stay near a caregiver it's protected uh it's useful for them to wake frequently in order to feed maintain milk supplies and things like that so everything is interconnected The Sleep Like a Baby podcast is supported by The Octopus Club. 
the online marketplace where you can buy, sell and give away baby and kid stuff without any hassle. If your home is piling up with toys, clothes and bits of kit that your little one no longer uses, the Octopus Club offers an easy, environmentally friendly way of selling or donating things to other families. And if you're on the hunt for high quality second-hand goods, this is the place for you. Honestly, the stuff on there is gorgeous. Check them out on Instagram or go straight to their website, theoctopusclub.com, to sign up today. And now back to my interview with Alice, where I was talking to her about when adult sleeping patterns started to change. After all, traditionally, humans would have had more fragmented sleep overnight. We didn't have electric lighting or heating, so our natural body clocks would have been more closely aligned with the natural patterns of the sun and the moon. And as adults overnight, we'd have got up to tend to the fire, to care for small children. Perhaps some people in the tribe would have kept watch for potential threats overnight, etc. So I'm also aware that even today, in lots of parts of the world, siestas and adult daytime naps are still very much part of the norm. So I asked Alice, when was it that it became widely accepted that in the West, nighttime is when we would do all of our sleeping? At the beginning of the 1900s, so the start of the 20th century, when um, there was a shift to uh, of industrialization, so we have um, factories emerging and people, rather than having small holdings and living in villages, they are starting to work for businesses and um, starting these ideas of kind of efficiency and time management and factory work mean that people have set working hours that they have to get to have to get up for um which means that um there's no option to sleep throughout the day people are generally working long shifts um and it shifts the way people think about sleep so the fact that um they only have a certain amount of rest time in the evening so they have to make sleep a lot more efficient than it was previously and um it also gives rise to encouraging children and babies to also adopt those kind of patterns because um, if babies are up at night, then parents aren't going to get the sleep that they need to go and work in the factories the next day. So around the start of the 1900s, the when um, sleep kind of pushed um, and we're encouraging more and more nighttime sleep and uh no sleep throughout the day and then alongside this throughout the kind of as the industrial revolution came into full effect and we've got um kind of in the early kind of 1900s there's often there's there's these other big shifts in our understanding of psychology right so uh we've got the start of behaviorism which started to see all of our behaviors as uh learnt and can you know through the process of conditioning which i think then is a really fascinating shift about how we then started to approach parenting and child raising. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I think there's this uh, idea that uh, kind of the nature versus nurture debate. So people are starting to think more about the nurture side of things and that we can shape um, our children, our babies into what we want them to be from an early age by treating them in a certain way. Um, ironically, I think uh, a lot of these ways actually were more harmful than they were productive. Um, I don't think they quite grasped um, their own concepts there. No. So, the, um, so in the kind of, would you say it's like the 1920s and 30s, there was this movement to start believing that therefore, so if a child cries and you respond to it, they're just learning that a cry gets a response and therefore they'll cry more whereas if you stop responding to that cry they'll learn oh well that doesn't get what I want so I'll stop doing it exactly so uh, again when we're thinking within these uh, kind of these ideas of industrialization and capitalism um, the rationale is that we can create um, our babies and our children to be good productive members of society so good workers if they can sleep well, if they can um, follow rules and um, if they can be self-sufficient and self-reliant so they don't rely on parents or caregivers for a long time, they can grow up and they can be independent, they can go out to work, they can be disciplined um, and they 
that will produce productive members of society, but it doesn't consider that um, those kind of things rely on um, the absence of care, uh, absence of attention that might have uh, untoward psychological effects on children. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and also, you know, so a, a mother who's breastfeeding her baby, because obviously, the, and that needs to be frequent, isn't going to be earning that money, is she? And, and that's the most important thing in a kind of capitalist, industrialised society. Exactly. So uh, everything's interrelated so much, but mm. um, we have various things going on when we're thinking about breastfeeding, obviously getting uh, adults, um, back to work is one of the priorities. So to try and um, discourage people from breastfeeding, so that they aren't, um, so that they can get back to work as quickly as possible. I think uh, I suppose this may be more of a kind of uh, later phenomenon because I think we're thinking about the early 20th century. Um, the 1920s women weren't uh, frequently going to work, mm. but as we get later on in the 1900s, obviously it becomes a bit more of a priority to get people back to work as soon as possible. And that's still something that is very much prevalent today. Many countries like in the USA don't really have any maternity leave. So for many women, it's just not an option. Yeah. Um, but I think as well, this is going on at the same time as this kind of scientific revolution um, and medicalization of life in general, which um, is also a shift towards getting, uh, being able to control the amount of food babies are getting and being able to, because with breastfeeding, there's no way of seeing how much babies are getting. This new, these new obsessions with kind of measurements. Um, and again, thinking of these children as machines. So if you give, if you put exactly the right amount of fuel in them, then they'll work the way you want them to, but you can't control the amount of fuel they're getting if um, they're getting fed from a breast. And then we've got, uh, you know, kind of marketization and advertisement. So, um, and just the rise of capitalism. So companies are creating products like infant formula milk that mm. they want to sell. And the only way to sell them is to undermine breastfeeding. Um, and to promote them as better than breastfeeding. None of this is straightforward either because it's so complex and alongside these things we've also got the rise of feminism which is obviously a hugely positive movement and you know I'm a working mother myself and I am hugely grateful for those rights that women have fought for over the years so you know there's an element of women wanting to be in the workforce and and um, and, and having more prominent positions in society which is ultimately only a good thing um and we've also got you know lots of babies who have benefited from things like formula and you know if 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 breastfeeding hasn't been available to them so it is it's really complex isn't it and um it's definitely been this movement isn't there into this scientific parenthood you know that experts know best than your baby so they you know experts know what you should feed your baby what routine you should be on and uh, like you say, looking at babies more as robots and all about the input and output rather than unique creatures in a, in a, you know, in a dynamic relationship with a caregiver. Exactly. I think there's uh, definitely some kind of mismatch about, um, you know, this is all happening and society is lagging behind um, this scientific revolution, capitalism, um, but we don't have the infrastructure to support women to make a decision um, when we're thinking about feminism. We need to ensure that we have um, the infrastructure in place to ensure that women can take time off work or they can do this and they can be um, facilitated to do that and have their own decisions. I think as well, this kind of starts... Um, this conflict, this idea of maternal conflict where they're, they're feeling their own intuition on their feeling, they're getting ideas about what they should be doing, but then that might be conflicting with what they're being told to do. So uh, kind of the idea of like mum guilt is starting to emerge in this period where um, 
what people are being told to do. And they might be getting conflicting advice from various different experts as well, which again, um, makes people feel bad for whatever they choose to do, because that will always conflict with someone else's advice. Yes, I swore when I had a baby, I wasn't going to be one of those women that was talking about mum guilt all the time. And I wasn't, I was going to just do my own thing. And I'm never going to fall prey to that. And oh my goodness, I have so much guilt all the time over everything. It's so hard not to. And yeah, I've become a total cliche. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that a lot of this, uh, the idea of mum guilt has been constructed by, um, in the early 1900s, in order to kind of uh, sell these methods, because um, they start by putting out these ideas, if you don't follow this, it's your fault. And, um, you know, you're not following the medical advice, which means that you don't uh, know what's important for your children. And by putting this kind of medical science above um, maternal instinct and maternal intuition, which previously, pre-1900s, um, that was what was given um, a precedence above anything else. But now doctors, uh, psychologists um, in the early 1900s are starting to take on um, some of this from what they know and um they are using what they know but much of what they know is um from ev- not from evidence um taken from biologically normal babies so they might be given heavy formula milk um that in no way would be similar to the kind of milk formula that we're giving babies today so um it would have been mostly very heavy cow's milk so not fortified um and it would mean that babies were uh again so when we think about the differences in milk and the biology this milk would have resulted in babies getting very sleepy being very full up for long periods of time and so um then they're doing studies on these babies that aren't under the same kind of conditions that babies are going to be like at home yes I think that that's such sense. a good point about the history of formula and you know and I I suppose I'm always very aware that as as a culture as a, as a species we do you know we rely on information shared from previous generations like that's a big part of parenthood isn't it you know grandmothers and mothers passing on information to each other and sharing what works and I think that's really important and valuable but what's happened in the last few generations is that um our grandmothers and great grandmothers were encouraged to use formula and uh and and as you say it had a different impact on sleep and it was much heavier than the and different uh composition to what the formula that we have available to us today so i think that's where a lot of this oh put your baby on a bottle and they'll sleep mentality comes from because it's from the previous generations who were using a slightly different kind you know that different more old-fashioned heavy formula that was making babies sleep and so you hear that advice from someone in your own family and you think, well, OK, I really want to sleep and maybe my breast milk is, you know, it's not good enough. It's not filling up my baby properly and um, he he or she really needs to sleep to develop. So there must be something wrong with what I'm doing. And therefore, if it's worked for the previous generations in my family, I'm going to also listen to them. But those previous generations were told by the experts that, you know, there was this movement, wasn't there, that breastfeeding was... A, a really negative thing for babies and that it was the it was the optimal way to feed your child was through an artificial milk rather than your own breast milk exactly and i think it's also worth um thinking about uh in, in this era there were really high mortality rates mm. um and there were babies that were dying and there were mothers that were dying and so um we've come a long way uh by using science and medicine yeah. and um, in this period pumping babies full of um, these milks might have saved some of them but there's a whole other things going on like understanding of infection and disease um, and I think yeah in this time there was a strong push to undermine breastfeeding again through control and thinking that if we can Um, control exactly what goes into babies then we can get Mm. out of them exactly what we want Um, there was also things going on um, with birth 
that might that also undermined the initiation of breastfeeding and meant that um, more people had issues initiating breastfeeding. So with the continuing medicalization of birth, which was uh, obviously both positive and negative, mm-hmm. using heavy sedatives um, to sedate women when they were in labor, which meant that they didn't feel pain and they could have a pain-free childbirth. But it also meant that many women were incapacitated for long periods after birth. So it took them a long time to recover from some of these really heavy analgesics. And it also, um, a lot of these crossed the the blood barrier. So it meant that babies were also born sedated. So Mm -hmm. for many babies, they couldn't um, suckle after birth. And this kind of facilitated the rise in hospital nurseries. So babies were carted off because mothers were incapacitated and babies couldn't suckle well after birth. So then hospital nurseries had to have um, something to feed the babies with. So they were giving the babies formula. Mm -hmm. And um, because mothers and babies had been separated from birth, it meant that um, it was really difficult for them to initiate breastfeeding. Um, And then it meant that many people had to resort to formula. And so, again, we've come a long way. Uh, where we have uh, analgesics that shouldn't have such a big effect on breastfeeding initiation. There is still some evidence that they have some effects on breastfeeding initiation. But um, this created this whole system, which even after drugs developed was still there. So I think until uh, the late 90s, there were still routinely hospital nurseries. Um, and this separation of mother and infant and so we lost um, that knowledge of the importance of keeping mothers and babies together after birth which then undermined breastfeeding and then made people uh, think that they couldn't breastfeed or create these ideas about um, breastfeeding and we lost that kind of knowledge about how to facilitate it in the first place. Yeah and I think the uh, as someone who really struggled to breastfeed um, myself and spoken obviously to lots and lots of um, mothers all the time all my clients about this you know that can be one of the initial um, perceived failures of motherhood and it's not a failure of course at all and there's lots of reasons why these things happen Um, but it's a very um, primal instinct to want to feed your child and therefore if you're unable to or if it's going really um, going kind of wrong at the start it can I feel like it's often one of the first um, kind of contributing factors to feeling like a failure, as can actually um, birth that doesn't go wrong, doesn't go how you would have hoped to as well. So sometimes that can mean the over-medicalization of birth, you know, that doctors or experts are telling you how to give birth and maybe you feel that you don't have autonomy over your own body anymore and that they know best and you, you know, that your instincts are sort of, um, are quashed as well so it's all part of this um, these early days of when you're becoming a parent are often filled with this fe- this narrative that you don't know what to do and other mm-hmm. people do and, and that your instincts are wrong and of course I have to say as well there are huge ben- as you've said huge benefits to the advances we've made in science and medicalization and as somebody who had a, a breech baby who we only found out at the last minute you know I got to have a beautiful and safe cesarean that was a wonderful experience and obviously I'm very very grateful to have a healthy baby um but it, it it's worth thinking about all those things of, of why why we then go on to continue to listen to experts even if those experts are bringing us conflicting or confusing information that maybe is not aligned with our own instincts it starts really early on in your motherhood journey doesn't it yeah, and we're still learning, yeah. and um, it's really hard because we've um, obviously at the early 1900s we were starting to understand these things, which meant that we made lots of mistakes um, on the way. And now it feels like we're kind of coming out of that, um, and we're starting to pick apart what might have been accurate, might what might have been less so less accurate. But I still think we're in a process of understanding. Mm. Um, and I think there are still things that we're realizing that we're not doing so well. Yes. Um, but it's really hard when we're thinking about this idea of scientific motherhood 
that uh, when when do we stop? Uh, when does this process stop? Kind of, we're telling people not to listen to scientific motherhood, but in itself, is that a scientific motherhood? Maybe I'm getting too deep. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean, and uh, and there are and like we've said, there are positives to knowing more about our bodies, understanding. You know, science is a. I'm a big fan of science, and I use it a lot in my work, and all of the understandings we have about neurobiology and all these things help us actually in many ways listen to those instincts so I think it's an ongoing process isn't it to to figure out uh, how we can use all of this technology positively um, rather than kind of in a way that is holding families back from making the right choices for them. have come along and just changed everything right so um suddenly parents and families are having to work all day we need children to sleep at night so that the families can make money working in a factory or what have you and then alongside that we've got these psychologists coming along and theorizing that we're all products of conditioning and that if you cuddle and kiss and sue the baby too much they're going to get used to it and expect it all the time and then that's also really bad because not only will we have weak and over emotional adults in the society they also won't be independent enough to let you go out to work so we don't want clinginess because clingy babies don't let their mothers go to work Mm -hmm. then we've also got throughout the kind of 20th century all of these scientific developments and technology advances that mean that we can replace things like breastfeeding we can um use all these techniques to make children sleep better there was a lot of obviously we haven't even talked about kind of the drugging of babies with things like gripe water with alcohol in it or you know giving babies a little nip of whiskey along you know over the years to make sure that they sleep long you know there was a lot of that and even today lots of parents use things like calpol or um maybe even um and this is obviously really dangerous but antihistamines to make children drowsy and sleep you know so there's all of that side of coming along and then the advances mm. in science and medicalization of of parenthood of birth of motherhood and it's all this kind of perfect storm that leads us up to i guess around the 80s and 90s when women are out in the workforce we we're quite you know medically advanced and the whole experience of childbirth and early motherhood is is very medicalized and then we start to see people like Ferber and Wisebluth sell out bring out these books about fixing baby sleep which I think is another really interesting moment in in the history of baby sleep yes for sure um these kind of ideas that uh baby sleep is something that can be fixed um, and something that needs to be fixed and these ideas about a good baby and what constitutes a good baby um, and that your baby is kind of morally corrupt if they're not sleeping as you want them to yeah and it's all your fault if they're sleeping mm-hmm. like a normal baby you know it's the it, it, for me it feels like it's become the parent's obligation to um, control how a baby sleeps and therefore if the baby is waking it is a failure on your personal part it's we've stopped accepting babies for what they are Um, you know and now I think with the rise of Instagram and social media you know there are all of these visions of perfect parenthood and you know glossy motherhood and yummy mummies and all of these things having these ostensibly perfect lives and perfect families and we look at that and so many influencers talk about how they have sleep trained their babies and they work with expensive high profile sleep consultants and it all just adds into this message that it's all your responsibility to fix your baby and if you don't well sorry that's on you yeah that I think it's really important to remember that and that what you see on Instagram is probably only about 30 seconds of someone's day um if you think about it in real time and so it's so easy to think that because someone's posting a few stories of their day that that's their entire day and uh, the whole context around it and just privilege yeah. um, people that you know work from home I know at the moment a lot of people are working <laughs> from home but it's yeah. so different to someone that has to leave the home and you know work shifts 
um, and having support systems around people that might be able to take the baby or even just being able to pay for someone to mm. come and help you with uh, whatever you're struggling with is a privilege and lo- that lots of people can't yeah. make the most of, but they still uh, live with that guilt. So it's very complex and it's really hard to navigate. I'm really, it is, and I'm really glad you've mentioned privilege because it's something that I think about all the time. You know, it is a privilege to be able to survive on very little sleep. You know, if you have a very wakeful baby or a normal baby, I should say, uh, who's waking several times a night, that is a, a privilege. If you don't have to go out to work the next day, you know, that that's something I'm very mindful of. And so I completely understand why people feel like sleep training is not a choice you know I think that's really important and then there's other levels of privilege of of support and family you know as you say of people to help because traditionally a parent would have been up all night and then they would have have had an extended family unit or a close community around them to support them during the day so that they could catch up on sleep or you know someone can take the baby and that's sort of evaporated now and even more so because of what's happened in the last you know year or so Exactly. And I think uh, what our research has taught us about um, kind of sleep training and thinking about fixing babies is that um, a lot of the anxiety and stress that's caused by sleep disruption is actually perpetuated by attempts to fix the baby. And um, again, having this kind of cross-cultural approach, if we look at countries that um, have very few sleep issues, well, report very few baby sleep issues, they generally have a cultural acceptance that babies will wake frequently. Um, And most of the time, there's absolutely no difference in the way that babies are actually sleeping. Um, A lot of the issues that people report with baby sleep is actually parental sleep and anxiety. And if you're trying to um, implement a routine, it creates this conflict between parents and babies. So what parents want their babies to do and what the babies are doing. And then that conflict mm-hmm. creates stress and anxiety. And so it, it, from what we've observed, it's counterintuitive um, and it creates more problems because it. what happens if uh, the baby doesn't follow the routine? If the baby follows the routine and everything works, then great. But if the baby doesn't follow the routine, what do you do Mm. and that yeah you've got a broken you've got a broken baby and you've got you've created an environment that uh is stressful the baby's getting stressed you're getting stressed Mm -hmm. because it's not following what you wanted it to do and then sleep is counterproductive it's counterproductive environment for sleep Mm -hmm. um and most of the time if everyone's relaxed and happy then sleep will come easily but when there's this tension and these anxieties around sleep and it's really hard. I appreciate it so hard to say, just don't, just don't get so stressed about it and oh, it will happen. Yes. Um, but I think starting to think of the why. So why is the baby not sleeping? Okay, well, the baby's biologically programmed um, to wake frequently. Um, it's not doing anything wrong. It's just part of the baby. And um, hopefully it will develop that over time and it will start Mm -hmm. sleeping but to just to try and remember that yes oh it's and it is so easy to say just relax and you know and I say that to clients and I I you know some rightly so kind of do an internal eye roll and I could see it you know they're thinking oh it's easy for you to tell me to just go with it because you're not up every two hours rocking or feeding or you know shushing and patting and it's exhausting and I know because I've been there and you know it is really hard and when you're then thinking oh god I've got to go back to work in six months two months next week like how am I going to do this and it gives you this sense of of anxiety but it's so true that what you're saying about perception and how we approach it and if we had a little bit more understanding of what is normal in our culture then the rest of society I believe would be more supportive to parents as well so that if you do go back to work and you know particularly I'm thinking about dads in this country who are back to work after 
you know, if they can afford to take paternity leave, even in the first place, because that's not even fully paid. But if, you know, and they're back to work very soon after a newborn has come into their lives, if if our employers are just more understanding that, that their lives have just changed and that this is a short period of time in the grand scheme of things and that we need to be giving families that support and the same for working mothers as well, just that flexibility and just sympathy and, uh, and compassion I, I think then we would have less of a need to fix our babies and uh, there's also a lot of shame out there for people who choose to get help and if, if getting help was more normalized you know if it if the norm wasn't to go off into your individual home and deal with it as an isolated unit if the norm was to be part of that community again I feel like we wouldn't need to do controlled crying and and all of these things which are ultimately just extremely stressful experiences for the parents yeah I think that's um really important to remember we've got a PhD student um in the lab who is from the Czech Republic and she's looking at Mm -hmm. sleep differences uh perceptions of sleep between the UK and the Czech Republic and she used to live in the UK when she had young children and she was amazed by how uh, everyone's obsession with sleep and um, this mm-hmm. idea of sleep training. She'd never heard it before. And in the Czech Republic, they get three years paid maternity leave. And mm-hmm. it just isn't a consideration that sleep's the problem or anything. And um, yeah, the idea of sleep training was just completely novel to her. Um, and she'd never considered it that, to be a problem until she moved to the UK and started raising a young child. And people were constantly telling her about um how she needs to sort her baby out yeah yeah and there's nothing more um I think disappointing in parenthood if you've been told okay it's your fault your baby sleeps the way they do you've been feeding them or cuddling them too much you've created a bad habit they've got all of these parental sleep associations that are supposed to be awful for sleep so you take away all those things you 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 push aside your instincts of, uh, to nurture and soothe your child you do the controlled crying or cry it out or whatever you're standing outside a room with a stopwatch listening to your child cry you're extremely stressed you're thinking why am I doing this you power through because everybody tells you it's the only way and then like a month or two months later your baby is waking again because that's how they're hardwired <laughs> that's how they are and you're just thinking this is another failure on my part because even the thing that was supposed to fix this, I didn't do it right. I wasn't consistent enough. I'm too weak. I need to make my baby more like a robot, essentially. And it's it's wrong to feel like I want to pick him or her up. Oh, it's such a nightmare, isn't it? We've got it. So I just feel like in the West, we've got really off track and we're just we've been looking in the wrong direction. We've been looking... How can we fix babies, not how can we support families for too long, I think. Yeah. No, you're right. uh, I could honestly, Alice, I could talk to you about this like the whole day. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the work that you're doing at Basis is so important. So could you, um, oh, sorry, well, the Infancy, Sleep Cent- Infancy and Sleep Centre, but could you, could you tell me a little bit more about what Basis is? Um, yeah. Because I don't think I've explained... No, that's fine. So um, at the Infancy and Sleep Centre, we run a resource called BASIS or the Baby Sleep Information Source. And it's a website that provides evidence-based information on infant sleep. And we frame the sleep of breastfed babies as biologically normal. So we're trying to unpick some of the myths um, that have historically prevailed about infant sleep by using the sleep of breastfed babies as the norm. Um, And we also try to dispel some general parenting myths. We provide um, a number of resources on there so that you can look on there. There's various uh, sections about infant sleep. So normal infant sleep, where should my baby sleep? So we talk about safe sleep. Um, We have a section on... um, kind of like accessories and devices um and we also have an infant sleep app that you can download so if you go on the website you can you'll find information about the infant sleep app and this um again just has a number of things predominantly focused on 
stay sleep. So trying to understand your risk factors for sudden, sudden infant death syndrome and where it might be safe for your baby to sleep. Um, and we also have a section for healthcare professionals. So that goes into a little bit more detail about the research. And um, there's some downloadable materials as well. So information sheets that health professionals or parents can download and distribute to people in their lives. Because I think it really helps as well for, um, I think a lot of this falls on the mother. So they get a lot of this information through their midwives and healthcare professionals. And I think um, it's really important to make sure that people's extended families are also getting this information to try and avoid um, this pressure that's coming from different ideas about how the baby should be sleeping. So um, if you have keen family members and things, it's also a great resource to share with them because it's very accessible. It's honestly, it's one of my favourite websites. I think it's just the work you're doing is so important. And yeah, I use it all the time uh, because I think it's only fair when I'm working with families on sleep uh problems to have the evidence to say well what do we know what is normal and um yeah it's it's the the resources on there are fantastic and you work don't you with lots of charities like the lullaby trust uh unicef baby friendly initiative the nct the la leche league like there's lots of organizations that um that you've you've collaborated with aren't yeah exactly and we try and collaborate on as much as we can so there should be consistency in the kind of messages that are coming across between all of those yeah. organizations and we share um evidence and things like that and as you've explained so so well from an anthropological you know biological cultural historical perspective you know it's not the babies that are the problem you know it's the how we're looking at it essentially yeah it's again it's hard to to frame this without uh, reinforcing eternal blame, uh, but it's yes. not—it's not what you're doing as a parent. It's how our society and how, how our culture sees babies that is influencing um, the way we're perceiving their behaviour. Well, thank you so much. I think that's all we've got time for today. But like I said, I could absolutely—I could just, yeah, I could listen to you talk about baby sleep <laughs> the whole day. <laughs> And thank you again for all the work that you guys are doing over at BASIS and with the Infancy and Sleep Centre at Durham University. I think it's such important work and you're helping so many families, so and myself included. So thank you. Oh, it's been really great to talk to you too. Mm-hmm.